Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy flight games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we're recounting our Antarctic adventures with sled dogs and tenuous, fleeting friendships in the edge of the Earth. More specifically, we're going to be breaking down the first few scenarios. For previous campaigns, we've done sort of like a mid-campaign check-in, you know, after like the fourth scenario is released, and then we come back at the end of it to kind of give our final thoughts. And uh, we're going to do something similar with this campaign, even though it was released all at the same time, right? Yeah, I think we're going to look at scenario one uh, in its entirety and scenario two in this one. And we'll talk about like the com- campaign mechanics at the end. Uh, so there'll be spoilers for those. I think we're going to try to keep spoilers out for any other scenarios in the campaign, especially because I don't think Dane's actually finished it yet. I have one scenario left. Yeah. <laughs> but just kind of like a a brief introduction uh, for those folks who might not have Edge of the Earth or maybe don't know exactly what it is. There's a unique thing about Edge of the Earth, which is that it was released in one campaign box. So that's kind of why we're we're going to be approaching it a little differently. I mean, we're trying to maintain kind of the most of the same stuff, but it came out in one big box, meaning that MJ and Jeremy could kind of do whatever they wanted with it. So the shape of the campaign is a little different. But we're going to, like I said earlier, largely stick to the kind of trying to the, do the same format. Yeah, I think we'll see more campaigns that are kind of nonlinear like this in the future with the new release for- format. So the new normal. Yay. Yeah, why don't we just jump into it? So so this campaign, uh, after a lengthy intro that introduces us to uh, nine new friends or enemies... Or, or yeah, I have, I'm sorry for interrupting. I'm going to go ahead and grind this to a halt right here so I can get something <laughs> off my chest. So what's, I, what's I feel like on, I'm, I'm the guy that, I'm, I'm the guy that you know, is uh, usually happy to kind of fast forward through the quest text most of the time. Mm. And I feel like, you know, normally we have kind of a good balance. You know, you, the campaign starts, you get a little bit of text, sets the stage, that's fine. This campaign opens with like, what, six, eight pages of text to read? There's like six pages of text, but you skip some of it. So, so it's like four pages. Okay, that's a... <laughs> I look. I, I I really I appreciate uh, MJ's vision and everyone at the you know at FFG. I they're trying to tell a, a story that's really cool. It's too much. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a it's a little bit too much text. Is I mean, am I am I crazy? Like, were you guys like, oh, great, six pages of text? Were you were you guys excited for that? I would have liked it to be a little bit more integrated into like the first scenario. But because of some of the mechanics of the partners, you don't necessarily know which ones are alive uh, by that point. So I, I understand why they had to front load it. <laughs> yeah. I almost wonder if like in Solo it wouldn't be as bad because in Solo you would kind of just read it silently. Like you'd kind of skim it to yourself before you started it. And it wouldn't be like everything grinds to a halt while somebody reads text for like 10 minutes. You know? Yeah. I mean, I'm not the fastest reader. And plus I had to come up with like nine different uh, voices on the spot. Which is really stretching my rage. <laughs> you outdid yourself. You definitely added a couple of new voices. And, uh, I mean, a, a very, very well done, Ben, uh, by all means. But yeah, sorry. I just, I, I have to get, I have to get that out there. Too much text. Come on. Uh, next campaign, let's tone it down just a little bit. That's my request. I might be on the only one on the complete other side of the spectrum where I was very happy to grab some popcorn and, uh, just, just listen as Harrison read through like eight pages of stuff. Uh, while he was recovering from sickness and also his breath was, you know, he needed to take a couple sips of water, but you know, we got through it. And, uh, I think, and we're going to maybe talk a little bit more about like how the, the partners interact with each other and things like that mechanically. But as far as the story text and stuff goes, I thought it kind of set things up nicely. Cause like kind of have to remember that MJ has to like make you feel something for these characters in a very brief you know, very brief, like like four pages or six pages is not a lot for you to get, like, get acquainted with somebody and understand them as characters. So like for th- for me, it, it worked really well. And uh, this, I'll maybe talk about it a little bit more when we get more into the lore and stuff like that. But I loved all the lore and I loved how how they got got us like kind of in touch with each person. 
Yeah, I I like it. It's supposed to be like the first act of the horror movie or whatever. We introduce all the characters before you start killing them off or whatever. So I kind of like that. I I just kind of wish it wasn't as front-loaded. She had to introduce a lot of different characters and try to establish their relationships with each other and a little bit of their personalities to try to make you care about them so that when they die horribly later, you feel bad. Yes. <laughs> I, that's that's definitely what they were going for. And yeah, we, we should move on and talk about the actual first scenario, but I, let me just foreshadow uh, what I'm going to say at the end of uh, part two of our survey of Edge of the Earth and just say that I think that introducing a significant number of NPCs that have personalities and relationships between them is maybe, like, I think that a living card game co-op game like this is maybe not the right medium for that kind of story is kind of what i'm getting at but we'll you know we'll we'll circle back around and and maybe talk about some stuff later yeah 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 so scenario so during that lengthy story text we're introduced to all those characters um and then we take off in our planes to go explore antarctica some of the characters think that's a bad idea some think it's a good (laughs) idea some of them are just kind of there some of them have been there before you know wrong (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's the ones that think it's a good idea. Uh, but it can't all be right. Is a very big departure from the uh, the expedition into the uh, you know the jungles where you you had to pay like top dollar to find chalk. By the way, because we could just take planes very easily, and we had somebody who just had supplies on them. You know, we yeah. it was very well funded. So it's happy someone about with that. tenure. You know, they had more pull in the. It wasn't just a, a random person starting their research. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably like someone, someone had, there was credible reports that there's like oil in Antarctica or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, we've got to get, got to get this expedition going. <laughs> we saw this black goop underneath the ice, you know? Yeah. Um, spare, yeah. spare no expense. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, tragedy strikes immediately. Our plane goes down and we're left stranded in the ice. One of our companions, who is definitely always cookie in my experience, uh, dies tragically uh, before we get to know them at all. Uh, they had a weird name. I wonder why. But yeah, so Ice and Death is the first scenario. Uh, this immediately takes on uh, one of the new features of the campaign where it's split up into three different parts that are basically each their own full scenario, but they share a lot of elements. So I think I was just going to kind of talk about the elements they all share mostly first before we break down each one. I mean, so first off, you kind of start with like a, a a smallish map, but as you explore it, it starts getting very, very big. And I guess that's a, a theme we see throughout uh, most of these scenarios in the campaign is is very big maps that you have to kind of explore. But Ben, does that mean that you actually have the mechanic explore? No, Dane, actually no. Uh, it's just moving between scenario uh, locations, and you have to spend clues to open up new ones. Um... And, you know, you just draw regular encounter cards that make the exploring dangerous or, like, motivate you to explore because there's a bunch of encounter cards that make locations spookier for a turn or two. So... This sure sounds like TFA, but better. Some could say that. (laughs) I think I enjoyed it more my first playthrough than TFA, but TFA has grown on me. It, it it does have some thematic similarities of necessity because they're both kind of about exploring in the same way that, you know, like Dream Eaters had some stuff in common with Carcosa and it had like the hidden cards and it had some of the same sure, sure, games yeah, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, I mean, mechanically, there, uh, there's a lot of differences, you know. Totally, yeah. Right. I think they did a pretty good job with that. No snakes. Yeah. It's too cold. <laughs> yeah, they're, that's true. They're, warm, they're cold-blooded. Cold-blooded. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so Ice and Death, like the goal mostly is to like find somewhere to camp for the night until we can... Uh, Weather out a storm. I think there's a storm going on. I don't quite remember. But we have to find somewhere to camp for the night, try to get supplies, and then survive the night. And then uh, after that, we'll we'll venture off to continue our, our research expedition. So, yeah, as I mentioned, like the map kind of starts out small. You use clues to open up areas that are further and further from the center. And in part one, you're trying to find uh, a location with high shelter. So all the locations have like a shelter value on them. Uh, which I think some cards interact with, and I think the skull scales up. Like, the better shelter you're at, the worse the skull might be. So the further you get out from the center, the more dangerous things become. And the more clues um, you have to spend, right? To get yeah, in. You more, to get into like the better locations, you need to spend even more clues. Although you don't really know that your first playthrough. Right. You're kind of just, like, poking around, trying to find stuff. Another is a lot of the, like, I don't know, corners isn't the right word, but, like, the furthest points on the map, the ones that you have to spend those clues to get to, a lot of them have like an optional objective on them that lets you find a supply. Uh, this is not something you have to spend points on to begin the campaign to get, but actually actions <laughs> during the scenario. To unlock, which is kind of like a, a little bit of a win more, um, because you get rewards, sort of, for doing them. 
you get items that you can use in the second scenario, and if you manage to keep those items throughout the whole scenario, you get to keep them as cards. And you get XP. But that's later. It's not as like hard win more as like Boundary Beyond or Wages of Sin or anything, but it's definitely like a it has that feel of like, oh, this is an extra thing you can try to accomplish on top of like trying to get victory or whatever. So you see that throughout all three parts because you can, you know, you, because they use the same map between all three parts, ones that you've completed already will stay completed. So you can kind of like spread out trying to complete that sub goal as you do the three parts. I guess there was a lot of encounter cards that we saw in this that like attach to locations. Uh, you kind of see that through most of the campaign because a lot of the generic encounter sets have some. Uh, sets of cards that attach to stuff and cause hazards or whatever. Yeah, which is which is kind of like it's trying to get across this theme that like there's environmental hazards all over the place because this is like a dangerous environment, right? Which worked for mm. me, honestly. I really like that. Yeah, it, it was like thematically pretty cool. There's like little like kind of storms and gusts, like kind of dusting the area while you're trying to find shelter. I tend I tend to like uh one thing I like about cards like this is that it gives you a little bit of an extra decision to make because sometimes you know that there's a card in the deck which it'll be very bad if I draw it and it goes on this location but it's much less mm. bad if it goes on this other location so it makes you want to maybe end your turn in a specific spot or play play delve too deep in a specific spot so I I think it can lead to some interesting decisions to make. Yeah. I agree. You do think about some of these cards um on repeat playthroughs. Uh, or even while you're playing the first time, after you've counted them once. Um, should should we talk about the one that we almost unanimously found to be very scary, that I, which I think was introduced in this first scenario? Yeah, oh, it was. so <laughs> you're, talking about, you're talking about Fatal Mirage, which... Polar Mirage. Polar Mirage. Polar right? Mirage, yeah, sorry. Yeah. That is a card that can attach to a location, and then after you discover or I think even obtain clues from that location, it makes you discard your whole hand, right? Yeah. Very nasty. Big motivation to use uh, one of the partner. One of the partners uh, <laughs> lets you ignore location those location effects for like one turn. <laughs> that I makes think sense. it's it's a really interesting and memorable card because I mean, first off, I think for it is kind of it, it, it's like a feel it's it's like a feel bad more than an actually terrible encounter card because. Mm. You know, usually you can lose your hand and it sucks, but you can deal with it. Yeah. Um, especially, you, but it's it's challenging because a lot of times when there's things that give have bad effects when you get clues, you can get around them just by discovering without investigating. And this specifically calls out that you can't do that. Yeah, it shuts down like Drawn of the Flame or Intelopor or any of that jazz. But it is, it's susceptible to the same card that kind of, uh, you know, cheeses like half the other encounter cards of the game, which is our old buddy Deny Existence. Yeah. So if you've got, uh, if you've got someone in the, if you've got someone in the group that has Deny, uh, you don't really have to worry about this too much. There's definitely counterplay to it. Uh, it's just different than what we've seen before. It's also called Deny Existence and that's it. Because not even Read the Signs <laughs> works on it. Because Read the Signs will blank right. the location, but this is a thing right. attached to the location. And and even if you do something like investigate with um, Sixth Sense and like get a, a symbol and choose to get clues from a different location, even if you get clues from somewhere else with one of those effects, I think it still triggers, right? Because uh, I think it says if you discover clues from this location. Right. So if you, you are a different location in the node or Sixth Sense or whatever, then it's still a trigger. It would, yeah, it would still fire. Is this the time to ask about when, uh, if, if you're using Pocket Telescope or doing Luke things, like as if? <laughs> no, I know. I never want to have to think about an as if question on this podcast. <laughs> we we already it make requires... Ben do that. We make Ben do that every two or three episodes, and you know, let's let's be nice to him. The rules for as ifs are, are so rough. If you have an as if question, you know what? Uh, find the uh, Arkham Horror LCG Community Rules Team Discord server and go ask questions to them. There's a the the whole council of rules nerds now has their own Discord server just for asking Arkham questions, and I found it very helpful so far. So, you know, track that down. I think there's links around somewhere or ask on our Discord. I can shoot you a link to that. So you can ask all your as-if questions there and the Elite Council will will try, try to figure out an answer. They have a giant spreadsheet that or, <laughs> that they want to send to MJ to try to actually answer some of the questions <laughs> that seem impossible to themselves. But, oh, man. Yeah, Polar Mirage, I mean, the art, though, is really, really cool. Like, when I looked at it, the first mm. thing I saw was the art, which is, like, kind of depicts, like, a research station. And then above it, there's, like, an aurora. But the aurora is, like, kind of like the city of the Elder Things. It's this, like, weird cryptic city, uh, which is really neat to see. 
But then I actually read the card and I was like, what? (laughs) Because it's not even like, uh, you you know, like, what's the what's the encounter card that comes with Crypt Chill? The spooky fog that increases the shroud by two. Obscuring fog? Yeah, obscuring fog and like those kinds of treacheries will sometimes say just attach to your location. Doesn't matter if there's clues on it. If there's not, sometimes it just whiffs. Great. Or if there's like attached to the location with the most clues. Uh, without a copy of this attached. Sure, that sometimes happens. But this just spreads. If there's already a copy of this specific encounter card on it, on the location with the most clues, it'll find the next one with the most most clues and then get put there. So it's just, it just doesn't want you to have fun. It doesn't want you to play with cards. It hates you. So <laughs> this is the worst well, one, in my opinion. I think a lot of these encounter cards are, I mean, as the game goes on, I think... Um, MJ and um, her team realize like, oh, you know, there's ways for these card- encounter cards to just kind of whiff when you draw them, which is, you know, sometimes someone new to the player, you draw the encounter card, doesn't do anything great. Um, but I think from like design standpoint, you probably don't want your encounter cards to sometimes do nothing. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, they, they should like have have some kind of impact, even if it's, it goes on a location where it doesn't matter that much, it should it should do something, right? Yeah. So I think they've done a good job of covering a lot of those bases with these new cards um, like that. So I don't mind that much. I mean, we'll probably talk about it more, but uh, a lot of these encounter cards are countered by one of the partners, Ellsworth. So we can probably talk about it more when we talk about the partners themselves, but uh, he had like a very benign ability when we read him, which is like, oh, you can ignore an encounter card for one person for one turn. And I don't think we brought him in our playthrough that Dan and I did with um, Colin and Kim, but... And my second playthrough, I brought him through, and he made it so that clue, that, that Spole Mirage did nothing. On the ice, or whatever that one that makes you do the agility test every time you enter or leave location, did <laughs> yeah. nothing. So <laughs> that really makes him a very powerful ally, because these guys are so strong. These uh, hazards are so strong. If there weren't ones that were like quite this bad, I'd just never bring him. Or they'd have to have given him a different ability to make him interesting. So Yeah. What else was going on overall before we dive into part one? Oh, uh, very important. There were there were penguins in this first scenario. Oh yeah, but only in art alone. Um, it was in so one it location, kind of a, right? It was like snow drifts or something. Yeah, it's foreshadowing to future penguins mostly. Um, right. You know, <laughs> these penguins are cute, but and you can hang out with them. There, well, there's like a baby penguin like sliding down a hill or something. You know, good penguin stuff. So much, much <laughs> like in the Super Mario sixty four level. Uh, I forget what it's called. But you, know, you know the one I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. yes, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, so I guess for specifics for each uh, for each part. So the first part is, um, I don't think they have official names, but I've just labeled them based on like the specific encounter set that goes into them. So the first one, uh, the crash encounter set is added in. So the main goal of this is to kind of like explore the map a little bit, and you're trying to find uh, somewhere to camp for the night. And you're trying to find uh, a place with the highest shelter that you can. So in the blind playthrough, this was pretty cool because you have no idea where to go. The map isn't even all on the board initially until you start exploring. Um, so you don't really know, like, oh, we got a beeline for this place right away to get the highest shelter. So I liked the exploration aspect of that a lot. It definitely felt a little bit better than, like, Forgotten Age, where it was, like, kind of random. Like, when you're trying to look around, you kind of make decisions, like, oh, I want to go to this place because it's got crystals on it. Or this place is penguins. Penguins probably have good shelters. They're, they can make igloos, right? That's what Mario's taught me. Uh, <laughs> so I like that a lot. I don't remember there being much other stuff going on. It does that. There's a recurring giant monster that spawns. Yes, in I was about scenarios. to say is that. that. It's like does that spawn in this first one? Terror of the stars. Yeah. So it it comes out in this one, um, and it, and we'll see it later multiple times. And I kind of like the idea of it because it goes along with like the whole harbinger and um, the ghost circle the undone watcher. one. Yeah, the watcher kind of theme so this thing is like had been following you and i think like if you kind of read the lore as your plane is crashing in the in the beginning i think that this is the thing that they see that like that scares them and, and makes them freak out and they go plummet into the into the ice yeah it might, it might be I, I don't quite remember there's definitely some big monster they see or, or something smacks the plane down right yeah yeah but yeah this is like a recurring mini boss I think it scales with investigator health, and it's kind of bulky, but yeah, it pops up like halfway through. I don't remember if it's an act or the agenda advancing, but I don't know. It, it's kind of a cool mini boss. I I don't know if I like it as much as 
Harbinger or Watcher, because those feel like one entity that's like constantly following you. And this one, I think every time it shows up, it it's not necessarily the same one. It's a different player card, it, or it's a different like card, physical card. Yeah. So it's more just like, oh, this is like the you know the goop. Like the goop is always after you. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like a mini boss that you keep seeing from like perspective of the big entity or whatever that the whatever the the final foe of this is. But I don't know. It works as a threat that pops up in the middle. It builds some tension when it's out because it is kind of scary. It's worth victory, so you know you got to kill it. Obviously, you can't can't not try to defeat it. So, but that's kind of cool. And then I think midway through part one, I think we also start getting a lot more goop happening. Like initially, it's mostly just like we're dealing with like the winter weather, you know, various various Antarctic treacheries. But then I think either the active agenda advances, we have to add a bunch of goop monsters into the deck. So it kind of starts building up the more existential threat in the miasma that we start seeing throughout the campaign. I'm trying to remember, most of those guys have like very, very bad abilities on them. Like when you attack them, yeah. They, I think they add a lot of them add like um, the tekelele to deck or or do some other other nasty effects. Yeah, there's the manifestations of madness and the glacial phantasms. And those, I just remember being like, this is so much help for somebody to chew through in the first scenario of like a, a campaign. Because um, most of them have like three or four health. And I'm used to like walking into a casino and dealing with rats. But this is very different. <laughs> uh, they're definitely bulkier enemies for scenario one, for sure. And you can, ev- I think the bulkier ones you can evade, but I think all of them are hunters. They are, yeah. It's just like the skittering nonsense, which is like... Oh, yeah. Little snakes. Those are those are the rats of this, right? They're like, right. <laughs> yeah. They're little little goo rats or whatever, and yeah. you kill them, you, did a, you get a weakness in your deck. So it kind of introduces that like mechanic we see through most of the campaign, uh, which is the Tekele deck, which is as you deal with enemies or fight the goo, you get these horrible... Well, so, some of them are not as scary as others, but you get like a random weakness out of your deck... Yeah, I mean, when when you say horrible, like, on average, they are, I think, less punishing than, like, a typical weakness or, like, an encounter card. I think there's one that I really don't like. But you get a lot of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You get a lot of them. There's, I don't remember the exact breakdown, but, like, some of them, like, make you take damage or, or horror. Those aren't that bad. But there's some that, like, there's one, like, you discard an asset. That's can be the bad nasty one. Yes. If you don't have, like, a, a trash asset to get rid of. I think some make you drop clues, which could be inconvenient at certain times. Uh, I think there's like a random discard from your hand, uh, lose money or stuff. The discard isn't random. Uh, oh no, yes it is, yes it is. No, I think it's random. Yeah, uh, there's five. You just named them all. I did? Alright, great job me. Uh, <laughs> so, I think they're meant to like deter you from going through your deck aggressively. Uh, I don't know if that succeeded. Uh, in I would, I would say that with. that did not work very well. <laughs> but they do, they do make it so your deck's a little bit less consistent, that it slows you down a little bit. And it's supposed to, I think, be the manifestation of like the the madness or whatever, right? The goo. Um, like you, you can't rely on your own. It's the goo in you. Mm, I, don't, I don't think you should ever say that again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but the the KLA uh, and and the goo monsters and my husband are all kind of introduced in this first scenario, like halfway through. And I think it kind of helps build up the theme and tension, and, and does a, a decent job of introducing it to the. Uh, to the players in this scenario so um uh, is there anything else about the shelter uh, first scenario that really stuck with you guys uh i guess i would just say that i i think that it is an interesting it's an interesting twist on the push your luck how many x can you get scenario in a couple of ways because the part that's specific to part one which is finding shelter it's not about like how many shelter points can you get it's sort of like what is the best shelter value you can get so it's it's not like, you know, how many of the things you can get. It's kind of like, because if you shoot for a, a really high shelter value place, this is even assuming that you played it before and you kind of know how it works. If you try, if you go for that and you're not able to get all the clues off of it or whatever, or not able to get everyone there, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's not like Midnight Mask where if you get like five out of the six, you're, you're just doing pretty well. So, uh, so that's kind of interesting. And then, yeah, the other part of it is getting all these extra little thingies, which are... Uh, you know, spread across multiple scenarios. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely like the push luck aspect. I mean, you can also still kind of do it in stages. Like you can find a two shroud location, shelter location, clear off the clues. So you have that as backup and then like go to the next one for the four, four and clear it off. And then like a six or whatever and keep going. I know in the blind playthrough that I did with Dan and Colin Kim, 
we managed to find the Shelter 8 location uh, purely randomly. Because I think we just said, oh, that place looks cool. Let's go hang out there. <laughs> um, yeah, and it works out great. Yeah, it made it interesting. I, I, do, I, did we just barely get it? I feel like we just kind of barely got it. Uh, sort of. My my two player run I did came afterward. I think we just barely won every single scenario, so it could be it could be getting those wires crossed there. But yeah, yeah, I know. I assume your experience is different, Dane. When I played through with Harrison Blind, we kind of like went around the crash site first, just kind of like scoping mm. out the immediate area. Then we chose a direction, and we ended up going to the to play with penguins and the snowdrifts, which was really nice. And then we we went to the like snow graveyard place. Mm. Shout out to Call of Cthulhu LCG. That's definitely also a, a very prominent card there. We went there, and then I read it, and I realized that there were optional tests that you could do to get these little things. And my eyes kind of like opened more wide, and you know the adrenaline started <laughs> to kick in, and you know I started like beyond the victory. There's another sub objective, like there's a second layer of things. So I got really excited. And uh, Larry got all, all the sled, sled dogs down, and we were able to just kind of, like, skirt and get almost every single one of them in the first one. Oh, really? Yeah, we didn't open the big, the, the Shelter 8 one, or the camp, I think. It's, like, the northernmost one. But we were able to get into, like, the old ship that, that broke down, and I think that was, like, a Shelter f- 6 or 5 or something. Yeah, I mean, there's like seven of those locations that you need to get clues to enter. Like three of them are yeah. like four times the number of players, and the ones in the ends are like effectively three because you have to do a a one times and then a two times to get to them. Yeah, we we didn't get to two of them. I think the the big mm. the cavern thing with shelter eight, and then there's another one like way up in the top right corner. But um, we got most of them, and uh, I think the big thing about this scenario was that like it feels like you just got off like a a plane crash where you, you're like wake up and you're like kind of wandering around you don't know where to go and like the the thing that contributes to that the most i think is the fact that ag is in the deck like and oh, that yeah. just makes it so erratic like sometimes you're just well i hope you know i hope we don't advance this turn because because sometimes we will and then there's a huge monster battle spawn or whatever yeah yeah and our, our playthrough we had miss we had norman and lily i think they had ancient evils they had wards, so we were able to cancel a couple of those. Yeah. And once again, it's like being able to cancel ancient evils or anything that places doom is a big power swing in a lot of scenarios. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like, okay, we don't have to worry about randomly losing a turn. So that means effectively we have, we're confident we're going to have these three turns. And that makes a big difference, I think. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, because in my two player, I, we play, I played Mark. Uh, we played Monty and Mark, and we had no wards, uh, definitely not in the first scenario, at least. And uh, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, so we just have three less, three less doom. And if we go through the whole deck, oh, <laughs> we might have even less turns. So, but <laughs> we also, uh, I think we played Del- we played a lot of delves at our blind playthrough, so we rolled in with a lot more experience that I found at uh, a later playthrough. So, yeah, we did, we did as know. well. It's like yeah. people complain about the mystics, but they they can really swing the game pretty drastically i think <laughs> definitely yeah so moving on to the second part uh which i think dan has not actually played yet um because in our blind playthrough we found the shelter eight location which means you didn't get the option to do the second part so in this part uh some of your friends are like left out in the cold and uh wander off into the wintry night and you kind of wake up and you're like what are you guys doing why'd they leave and you have to decide <laughs> if you want to go after them or not so this is a, uh, the first of many optional scenarios. Um, if you did have Shelter 8, then I, you everybody had a place to sleep, so you skip it. Um, but otherwise, uh, for every... Or actually, I think if your Shelter it has to be equal to the number of partners you have left. In that order you have to, alive. Be yeah, forced yeah. to skip it. So if you kept everyone that you've... Possible that you could have kept alive, then that's 8. Um, but if you had people die in the first scenario, then maybe it's a little bit less. But... Uh, whatever the difference is in your living people and your shelter, that's how many people wander off into the wilderness. So this scenario, you uh, take some cards, uh, one for each person that wandered off randomly. You kind of randomly pick which one, which ones wander off. And you mix them into, I forget what the, there was some name for the deck, but they're like Lost Explorer deck or something. And then you place one on each location in play. So then you have to kind of run around, get clues, and use those clues to flip over those 
uh, Lost Explorers, and some of them are just like flavor text that's like, oh, you follow some footprints and they lead to nowhere. And then, you, and then you're sad because you don't find anyone. We usually get compensated. You get a victory or something, right? You def you don't get a victory, but I think you get some other effect. Like you might remove a frost token, or yeah, yeah, yeah. that's you get, it. That's you get it. draw cards or something. There's definitely no victory on any of them. <laughs> um, so there's something else I was going to talk about, but yeah, you kind of have to explore the map. So once again, encourage you to explore the map. There's a couple of mechanics that let you, I think, peek at some of the cards, so you can like make a decision whether, oh, do we really need to break into that um, four times investigator clues location? This. Um, this part of the scenario, or can we save it to later? Like, is one of our people there or not? And you're just, it's its sort of like another push your luck one where you're trying to find everybody because you want, you have to get back to the campsite uh, and resign, I believe, uh, or you'll get, you know, the agenda will, uh, you'll, you'll doom out. And there's also like, uh, I think there's like a bunch of nameless mooks that are in the encounter deck that like pop out and are like possessed or whatever is going on with them. Oh, and yeah, they're to, terrible. Like, <laughs> yeah they have doom on them but you can't kill them because if you kill them they'll drop the doom on the location and then you can't do anything about it yes you have to parlay with them so you have to, you have to parlay with them or i think you have to evade them by like two or something yep. depending on which ones yep, they yep, are yep. the one you have to parlay with by the way has maybe second guess ever touching a bag of black licorice ever again please elaborate <laughs> so <laughs> the art the art makes me feel like every time i every time I'm like you know what maybe i'm old enough to where like my taste buds have developed and, you know, I can eat some black licorice and be like, yes, I can, you know, be in the black licorice club. But and then I eat one. And then this is the exact art that I feel like when I eat black licorice again and again and again. And I don't know why I keep doing it to myself. But this last researcher is exactly how it feels to eat black licorice. Unless you're in the black licorice club. I think I think the rule is just don't eat the black licorice. I'm looking at the art now and now I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I he just got like so much black goop coming out of like his mouth and nose. Yes, like, ah. everywhere, all orifices. <laughs> oh, this isn't the bad one though. There's there's the other one that you have to evade, and as yeah. and as Daisy and uh, and Mark, it would have been impossible had I not taken the 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 glyphs that allow you to evade people. So mm. that was that was good. Yeah, in our play in my playthrough with Kim, uh, I was Monty, so. I was able to evade them pretty easily. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting. It's a new way because a lot of I don't think we've seen scenarios before where if you get doom on something, you're like forced to not kill them in order to get to get rid of the doom. Uh, outside of maybe for the greater good. Yeah, I was gonna say there's that's definitely been a thing before. As again, as someone who has not played this scenario, I my initial impression just on hearing about it was that it was basically just kind of more of the same after part one but it sounds like there mm-hmm. is actually some unique stuff in it so i guess that's kind of neat i i would guess that next time we play edge of the earth i would think we're going to try to go for that shelter eight location in part one uh most of the time so i would expect that maybe we won't play this that much unless we're playing like on hard mode with bad decks or something and we can't get it but uh maybe we'll maybe we'll see it occasionally yeah and the thing with this is so it does give you another opportunity to explore the map to try to get the uh optional win more stuff because if you don't do the scenario then exactly, that means yeah. you only have two scenarios worth of stuff to explore that is true it's also i mean compared to doing just part one it gives you another chance to delve and stuff like that exactly. too. yeah yeah if you're not using cards like delve that give you extra experience per scenario though this gives you no extra experience versus if you just got in shelter eight right because you get experience for each of the your friends that you find but that's just the difference between your shelter and your shelter and the number of people you had left. So if you get the shelter eight, you get eight experience, and then you're you all set. I think the terror might no... come back. Maybe I don't uh, remember. Nope, I definitely didn't. Okay, at least at least from what I recall, because when I played it with Kim, we got like we only had we found a shelter six, I think, and so like two of our people wandered off, and we found those two people, and we got two experience. Mm. And I went back and checked everything. I was like, oh, there was no way to get more experience here. <laughs> so I, I mean, I guess that's good in that. It doesn't let you inflate experience out by doing extra scenarios, but it was a little bit of a bummer. Because none of the locations even have victory on them. It's all the shelter that gives you stuff. So, yeah, do you have any other thoughts on part two, Dane? Or Dan, who hasn't played it? Mm, There's not very much yeah. story text, Dan. Yeah. I think, well, that's that's a welcome change. <laughs> I think the biggest takeaway was just that it's another opportunity to get, to get all the little parts from each of the locations. Mm-hmm. That was like, that was kind of... A, 
both Harrison and I were pretty thankful because because like we didn't get all of them. So this this allowed us to get the last ones that we needed. Yeah, in, in the two player run, you know, we got a couple on the first one, and then the second one I was like, all right, I guess we have to explore more of the map and find more of the optional objectives. Start it. Uh, that's it, what we it, did. it definitely it is difficult to get a bunch of those while also finding a good shelter value mm-hmm. and dealing with the encounter deck, etc. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Part three is also optional. I think you wake up at the in the early morning or something, and there's earthquakes happening, and there's um, oil or I mean goo uh, blasting out of the ice. So you can either like run away, or you can like stand and like hold the line and and fight their goo as it comes out. So it's interesting. Like it felt kind of like a, it was like kind of like a boss fight, but not like you know like a final boss fight. Like if we compare it to our WoW rating days, it was like a, a gauntlet type of thing. That you had to to fight through until you could could get uh you know beat the timer and get out. What was that in WoW? Mount Hydral or something where it had like giant waves of enemies. I don't know. I just remember them always being very not fun at all. <laughs> well, I mean, oh, what did really? you think about this one, Dan? So th- this one, you like um there was like piles of goo that like every like two doom or something a guy would pop out and you have to kind of fight him and you could like go and like blow up the goo, but doing that all at once. But if you did that. You would basically lose turns because, uh, you know, you'd kill everything off faster. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean that 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 was kind of weird. Like the figuring out the kind of correct way to play strategically with that with that mechanic was kind of difficult. But I, I remember this being kind of cool. I mean, it was. I guess it was neat to to have the sort of like you've already explored the area. Now it's time for like the big set piece battle at the end of it. I thought that was a neat neat way to mm. do it. Yeah, I like this scenario a lot. It was very fun. Um, at this point, Larry had uh, taken sled dogs, and he also took uh, two upgraded, not combat knives, uh, survival knives. And so Larry just stood at the campsite with two survival knives, and when anything would jump on him, he would immediately murder it with, with said survival knives. So it was just, everything just kind of went into the Larry meat grinder um, until he, he chose to go out and, and murder things with sled dogs, but... I love these kind of things in games where, you know, you have to get this door open or something like that and all the enemies are coming from behind you and they're like, you have to hold, you know, you have to hold the line while we open the door or, you know, the scientist has to do the thing while you fight the things. This yeah, usually felt very, exactly very, right. very, very slowly. They have to <laughs> yeah. Very slowly cut the door open. Yeah. There's like a yeah, progress exactly. bar in the, in the corner. It's like, oh, almost disarmed Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like this, this felt like that for me. And I thought it was cool because it's kind of like, I don't know that we've had this kind of scenario before, like where you just sit somewhere and murder things. Uh, because there was a point where the tide kind of turned and that was basically when Larry got both his survival knives out. And he was like, I don't have to wait here anymore. I can just go to them and start murdering them and like just sit on locations that they spawn on and kill them. So Larry eventually did that and left the camp with, with the dogs in tow. But um, yeah, it was it was very fun. And then I kind of literally just got to run around the map and do secret things. So that was close to my experience in two player. Uh, Kim was playing Mark, and she just ran around and killed the monsters. And I was like, "All right, well, clues don't. I don't think clues actually help you defeat the monsters in any way." So I was like, "I guess I just have to explore the map and find the rest of those <laughs> those other uh, supply objectives we didn't complete that's, yet." That's exactly what I did. Yeah. So it was kind of like a race against, like, "All right, I have to find all this stuff before Mark kills everything." So <laughs> oh yeah yeah i guess that was that is one thing i kind of remembered as monterey jack it was a little bit it, it was just a little bit strange that there wasn't really any way to like spend clues to defeat mm. enemies or to, to prevent them from spawning or something because usually they usually they have a way for you to do that but i don't know like ben like ben said there are all the optional objectives to accomplish so you kind of still have something to do well yeah i made it so like defeating the enemies was the primary objective instead of getting clues which most of the time it's like get clues to win it kind so of flips think, things around a little bit. Yeah. And was there really no way to spend the clues to help with fight the guys? I think I you could remember. spend them to evade them. The big the big goo things that yeah, spawn the other things. But I don't remember too well. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't remember either. Yeah, I, I liked it. I think on four player, there's like four big pu- giant goo puddles, which makes it a little bit harder to like kite them around if you need to. It makes it, I don't know. I, I, I liked it. So it, it felt different. It felt like everyone had something to do because it was either like, oh, we got to get clues or, oh, we got to kill the monsters. I got to protect somebody. And I thought it was a good 
climax to the the set of three scenarios uh, for Ice and Death. I agree. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, it's the end of Act 1, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of, in the sense of the campaign, so. Yeah. I don't know, anything else to say about um, Part 3 or Ice and Death as a whole for Scenario 1? I was sad that there were no penguins. That's, yeah, that's one thing that I did that, say. That's a big miss. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I guess as as kind of like the first time that we've seen... The first example we've seen of this, like, checkpointing with, like, one big scenario that has multiple parts, um, I think it, it's interesting. It definitely shows a lot of the possibilities of that, while also showing, like, some of the kind of weaknesses, which is, like, well, it's nice that you get to reuse the same locations, but it also means you don't get to see a new map every time, and the encounter deck stays relatively similar. So th- there's pros and cons. I think I think it's a, it was a cool set of scenarios. Yeah. I yeah. ultimately liked it, but I, I definitely, Dan's second point there, felt that. Because the third time around, Harrison and I on our blind run did all three. And the third time around, I was like, we're doing these again. <laughs> like all of these these uh, encounter cards, like the Dark Aurora, Ice Shafts, all that kind of stuff. Like they all came back for the third time. And it's like, okay, I get it. We're out in the wilderness. <laughs> I want something new, please. Um, so that was a little bit of a miss for me. Um, just because like I was, I was hoping that there would be more. And it kind of ended up feeling a little bit like in Innsmouth where you have that same cave set up every single time. Mm. Mm. But otherwise I enjoyed I enjoyed the flavor. I enjoyed like the the battling the the goo monsters and and saving your friends and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. It definitely we use the encounter deck a lot, but I think there's a lot of uh diversity just within the encounter deck. Like there's there's like 8 or, or 10 of those different ha- hazards that are all mixed together there. So I feel like you don't see them as much going through, but definitely by the time you've done it 3 times, you're like, okay, you know, <laughs> through the ice is coming up. We got to get away from that or whatever. Ice shaft or whatever. So, but yeah, I I thought it was a good demonstration of the new way they can uh, do campaigns in this box. So moving on to scenario two, uh, to the Forbidden Peaks. Story-wise, we kind of like met up with our people and we're like, all right, I guess we can either go back and retreat, um, find our way back to the, the ice shelf wherever we ported our boat the theodisa or whatever it is uh, or we can keep going for the sake of those who died and by those who died we mean cookie because he's the only one that died so far <laughs> <laughs> and climb up the mountain so that's that's what this scenario is it's climbing the mountain we grab our supplies that we might have found they've now become item cards um we have to pick them up uh sometimes repeatedly to drag them up this tall mountain and I mean, that's the theme. Yeah, it's a mountain. Uh, you had to climb a mountain in a campaign based on the Mountains of Madness. Like, you know, that was required. So It's it's right there in the name. Yeah, the main mechanic with this is there's levels. So you like you start at, like, level zero, and then each each card you move to is the next level up. And some encounter cards uh, do different things based on what level you're at, or they're harder. And then I think every time you go up the mountain, when you enter a location from below, there's some penalty you take like you might take a horror or damage or you might have to do a test to avoid something you might get a to kill a in your deck or something like that so it makes makes you not want to go back down the mountain as much as possible but the encounter dark cards uh and enemies and stuff sometimes force you to slide back down the mountain and have to climb back up it and drop your stuff which is really annoying <laughs> yeah and if you're monterey jack you're compelled to move two spaces every turn uh so that really you really have to weigh like do i want to move down the mountain twice just so i can get an extra card draw on money and then take those effects climb back up and uh yes answers yes usually actually so um what was the oh there's no penguins in this entire scenario which uh might but might make it the worst scenario just because there's a lack of penguins but um you know just just by default um <laughs> what did you guys think of this one so the other running up the hill, running up that hill by Kay Bush scenario was um, where Doom awaits, right? In in Dunwich. And that yeah. scenario was like maybe two out of five stars for me. <laughs> but this one, I think it did it a lot better. I like the level mechanic a lot. The skull scaled and I really like campaigns that skulls or uh, scenarios where skull, the skull scales. That is a tongue twister. Scenarios where the skull scales. And 
I thought that the 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 dropping your things was really nice because for all the people who are like overachievers and want to get everything, then you have all of them in your deck, or, or no, you, you get them all at the bottom, and then you have to pick them all up, right? Um, so it's an action to pick up every single one, and if say you yeah. have seven of them in two player, it's a lot of actions. It it really was. Um, luckily, so Harrison was playing Larry, and he had sled dogs. So by the time we got to the top, we had dropped three on the same location, and he just used sled dogs to go down. Action, action, pick them up, and then at the beginning of the for the next round, action, action, pick them up, and then sled dog back up the mountain, <laughs> uh, which worked really well. <laughs> so, yeah, sled dog's OP. That's really that's really cute. It's like a pathfinder that's uh, way way slower and worse. <laughs> it's one action to go uh, four locations, Dan. Uh, pathfinder, you get two of them out. It's uh, zero actions to go two locations. That's pretty good. No, I'm I, I'm being a jerk. I I think that uh, I mean, it's sort of like what Dane was saying with a comparison to where Doom awaits. That's definitely apt because. Uh, where Doom Awaits was a similar thing of trying to climb a hill, but it didn't really use the kind of gravity ascent kind of theme at all. Um, it was all about kind of like other world locations or something. Um, so yeah, on the one hand, this scenario uh, I think was quite well designed. We always like the scenarios where the shape of the map is directly linked to what's going on kind of mm-hmm. in the narrative and also has mechanical connections. So uh, Essex County Express is like the first early example of this. There's also things like uh, Carnival of Horrors. So that's really great. Um, and in general, I, I, th- I thought this was really well designed. On the other hand, uh, I was playing Monterey Jack, and uh, this scenario did not allow me to just move all the time for no reason just to get free cards and money. So <laughs> zero out of five stars, uh, worst scenario in the campaign, uh, <laughs> blah, 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 you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I thought the encounter deck... Uh, does a good job of like really making you feel like you're slogging up a mountain. Uh, there's even cards like you know oh, yeah. avalanche that like pushes you back down the mountain. You know? <laughs> oh, that was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought it was cool that like if you're someone that's stubborn that stubbornly wants to carry all the supplies up, it's like kind of difficult. <laughs> um, it really is. And it's like, all right, is it really worth? Do I really need this sledge, this like worse version of backpack? <laughs> oh god, to carry up the mountain or not? They're they're uh, really yeah they're they're really trying to get you to to ask yourself like oh do we really need the coffee maker like can we, can we <laughs> survive the rest of the expedition without coffee we could that, that's fine right <laughs> it did uh, that really I well mean, honestly yeah most of those cards like feel like they're pretty useful um, so you kind of have to weigh if you want them or not and they also have a ton of icons. Yeah, like they're all like you put them in your deck. I mean, the reward if you get for each one that you get to the top of the mountain and resign with, or end the scenario with, if you have to resign or not, you get the option to put it in your deck. And if you put it in your deck, you get an extra experience. But unfortunately, it doesn't give experience to the whole group. It's just the person that puts it in their deck. Which yeah, I didn't like as much. Um, but maybe they're just sort of trying to control how much experience you get throughout the campaign. I don't know. I felt conflicted about that because uh, both Larry and I had like three or four each or something like that. And I took the wooden sledge and I was like, I mean, it's experience. I'll take it. It's a card in my deck. And every single campaign or every single scenario since then I've drawn it. I've just been like, Oh, this is in my deck. Commits for some agility. I think. Yeah. Mark just committed it <laughs> to evade occasionally. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. They're not useless. It's just sometimes they feel bad. Yeah. Most of them felt pretty good. I felt like, those items, a lot of them, they're all an action to play, so sometimes I just didn't have actions to play them. Yeah. In a lot of these scenarios, because I think the Doom Clock in a lot of these scenarios is pretty tight, especially if you don't have, like, wards for the Ancient Eels. Right. I think the radio was my favorite one. Yeah, the radio was definitely my favorite. It lets you, like, use the abilities of the investiga- the partners that aren't with you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a couple times. It's really fun. You can kind of, like, tactically choose who you want with you and who you want to radio mm-hmm. in later. Yeah, because some of those guys, you're like, yeah, I'll use the ability once a scenario. And the radio kind of helps out with that. So I thought that was cool. I don't know, any other, any other big things about this one? I think overall, I liked it. The terror shows up again. Uh, yeah. Randomly yeah, mercs yeah. somebody. Oh, that was, yeah, that was sad. Yeah, and the terror in this one, like, it stops you from going up the mountain when you have to fight it. Um, and I think, oh, it also makes you drop all your supplies. I it think. sure does. God, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, haste is really good in this uh this this campaign weirdly enough <laughs> yeah I guess, yeah i guess so well i think uh we can talk about a couple of the campaign mechanics uh before we wrap up this episode and we'll talk about the other scenarios 
probably next time. So um, this campaign introduces a couple new mechanics, and we I think we see one returning one. The major one was the frost tokens, which is a new type of token. You get these throughout the campaign. Sometimes it's forced. Um, sometimes you can make a decision to like gain some benefit to add one to the the bag. Uh, by themselves, they just start. They're minus one draw again. But if you draw two of them, it's an auto fail. So I don't know. What do you guys think about the frost tokens? How do they affect? Do they affect you guys. Affect how you guys played it all. Any big memorable moments from double frost toking or something like that? <laughs> Knowing that we had them in the bag, I kind of like was a little bit more apprehensive to take like really big singular tests, and um, we ended up taking the ally that helps with them. Claypool, Claypool, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because we weren't sure how powerful they would be. And mm. I'm still kind of on the fence about if if they're really scary or really not, because we, we kind of like approached uh, Innsmouth in that sometimes blesses and curses just don't do anything regardless of how many you have. In our experience, Harrison and I's experience, when we had less, they did more, <laughs> which is not supposed to happen, I think statistically and we had like we we eventually had the max amount this was later on in the campaign um and we we're like oh no we're gonna pull them all the time we're gonna have all, all these auto fails and then they just never came up whereas when we were climbing up the peak and we had like two or like three in the bag we auto failed like eight or ten times in that scenario so <laughs> uh yeah i don't know i don't know what that says about things um yeah i know for me i felt like they were kind of like a, a looming threat that, that kind of reminded you that oh it's cold you know uh, there's there's a little bit more uncertainty but most of the time it was kind of like curse tokens where they didn't really do anything. Uh, I definitely had at least one double frost on a giant or gliss test uh, that felt real bad, but for the most part <laughs> they didn't seem too bad. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what Ben said. I think I mean I think they were cool, but they felt very similar to curse tokens. Like they, they do basically the same thing. Even the fact that, Oh, it turns double, double snow token is an auto fail. Even that's pretty similar to a curse token because you can think of the curse token is like basically turning the minus four into an auto fail kind of in most situations or, or turning, you know, it's basically, it's all about like how many successes or failures does it add or remove from the back kind of. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it is, it's exciting when you draw the first frost token and suddenly you're like, Oh, it's sudden death mode. If we draw another one, (laughs) we fail the test. Yeah. Uh, which was kind of cool, but I, I, I guess my only takeaway, it was fine, but if this is going to be, if this is not a thing that they're going to add to every campaign from now on, I kind of would have liked it if there had been like a gap between Innsmouth and this, because I think it would have been cooler if it had been like we had one campaign without kind of a curse E token, and then you come back and it's like, oh, they're bringing back the Innsmouth thing from all, all that time ago. Mm. D- doing it back to back just made it a little bit less exciting, but it was, it was still fine. It was, it was fun. Yeah. I, I, the other thing that, that they can do is you draw the minus one and then the minus four, which happened a weird number of times because generally like in four, yeah, <laughs> generally in standard, you're like prepared for plus four, right? And then uh, the whole reason why Forgotten Age is bad is is because you get the minus five and it's like, who who authorized this? But um, in this, you kind of still get that because you start off with one, but it's not exactly a minus five. It's like you don't get a minus five asterisk. You know, so so sometimes you'll draw it, but it feels a little bit more fair than just plainly putting a minus five in there. I don't think any of my playthroughs we ramped up. We didn't didn't ramp up to the full eight in any of them, so we didn't have too many times where those messed us up. And I think we usually, when presented with the opportunity to remove them, we did, so we didn't have to think about them math wise. So there was a cost a cost analysis, I think, um, with dealing with the frost tokens, which is interesting, at least. So another mechanic, uh, this is a big one, is the partners. So these are obviously the nine characters that were introduced to since the beginning of the campaign that the goal is for us to be a little bit emotionally invested in them. Uh, and then each one of them has its own, an ability that's kind of tied to their profession or, or some part of their story. Each scenario, you can bring one of the partners with you. And like damage and horror that they take will stay on them between scenarios. So you kind of like don't want to use them as health soaks necessarily if you want to keep them alive. There's also some encounter cards that target them directly or kind of indirectly. Like there's the, there's the location that 
Uh, like you, if you end your turn there, you take all your all your stuff takes a horror, all your stuff takes a damage or something. So including your assets, and there's like uh, I think there's a one or two encounter cards like attached to the ally, and they will take damage or horror unless you deal with it uh, every round. That one's bad. So yeah, miasmic. Torment. So like they're interesting, and I think like in the blind playthrough, you're not like necessarily sure like oh is one of these going to be the best one for this scenario. Um, and when you're playing it, you, can, you might know the scenario is a little better. So you might be like, oh, I, we're going to take a bunch of damage this scenario, so we want to bring the healer person. Or, oh, there's a lot of evading to do with this, and we're both kind of out of evading, so we'll bring the one that helps us evade. So it kind of gives an, an option. A lot of them give options to investigators that might not necessarily be have access to cards that help support them in some of the basic stuff otherwise. Yeah, and, and f- for me, the, the thing that I liked about this was it reminded me of Supplies from Forgotten Age a little bit, but in a much better way, because unlike Supplies, you kind of know exactly what benefit these guys provide. Like, you can just look at their text, and you can say, oh, this guy heals horror, so if I, ex- if I have low sanity, or I'm expecting, I have trauma, I'm expecting that healing horror would be good, I can put this guy, I can choose this guy as my partner. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked that aspect of it, the kind of giving you another interesting choice giving you an extra button to press um i thought that was cool yeah for me i i wanted more variants i think in the allies that i took but fortunate uh, very unfortunately daisy got uh an offer you can't refuse which meant that when uh tadaka went into the uh into the night in scenario two daisy just went screaming after her and it was absolutely not an option for us to not find (laughs) so so yeah we we I basically just uh, took resources from her constantly to ensure that I was always at offer uh, level. But, you know, good good Netrunner yeah. fundamentals had me okay. Yeah. I think in our blind playthrough, we mixed it up a bit. Uh, I think eventually we might have settled on certain ones that we brought every time. But, like, uh, Danforth, he's, like, initially not as useful because you don't have Takeda Lays in your deck. But later in the campaign, you might have a bunch of them. So you bring him to help soften the blow when you draw those. Ellsworth, as we mentioned, I think in our blind playthrough, we kind of thought he was kind of meh, because his ability, we played four player, and he only has like five uses, so it was like, eh, not going to be able to use it very much on people. Uh, but when I did two player, I brought him every time, and he was amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, I was bring him all the time, unless he dies horribly, which, you know, he'll be fine, because Cookie always dies first, followed by Takeda, actually, every time. So, <laughs> she always gets grabbed by that giant uh, monster. But yeah, and then, like, so there's some motivation to keep them alive. The ones that you keep alive, I think when you do the interludes, you get a chance to talk to them, they give you some benefit. But if they die, you do get a chance to loot their bodies and maybe read some very sad story text, uh, depending which ones are alive or not, which is kind of cool, because it's like, oh, if they die, you still get uh, some benefit from them that you can, if you want, you can get, like, a, an item or something to add to your deck. So they kind of stay with you for the whole campaign. But yeah, I, I think it depends what investigators you bring. Um, it can change the decision, and also which ones get randomly marked, because that might uh, change your strategy a little bit for a campaign. Yeah, kind of. Kind of my last point that I wanted to make about partners and things for that, like the whole sort of lore surrounding them, for me was personally great. Harrison and I were reading it, and we teared up when Elia unfortunately died, and uh, the his his pet was just like trying to get him to wake up and he was just not going to wake up. And uh, it was a very sad moment. And, uh, and I think that the writing in general is just really well done from MJ, honestly, uh, this time around anyway, just because it, it definitely helped connect us to those, those partners and make those decisions a little, a little uh, more soundly. But I think overall, uh, this is probably one of my favorite beginnings of, of a campaign. Um, even though there are no penguins, despite the fact that there are no penguins, which I really want to get into because I'm very excited to talk about the encounter card that they're associated with. You know, it, they tease us with the penguins. We know they're there. And when they do make an appearance, you know, it just hits that much better. It's, you know? it's it does. much yeah. like much like the shark in Steven Spielberg's 1975 <laughs> film Jaws. You know, it's it's <laughs> they 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 use it sparingly, the penguins, but it, it really it counts for a lot when it's there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think as far as like the first half of this goes, is that it's not super complex, right? Like it's it's kind of all the same encounter cards. So and and you're kind of trudging through the same sort of environment, literally the same map for a few of them. So it was kind of a nice breath of fresh air for to the Forbidden Peaks. 
And I think in the second half, there's a lot more complexity involved in like how the the maps are set up and all that kind of stuff. So mm. I think it might be a little polarizing, pun definitely intended, because of the, that fact. Because the, the map is just kind of maybe got a little bit stale for me and the encounter cards got a little bit stale for me by the end. And then everything shifts towards the second half. We should uh, we should mention one last uh, mechanic, though, right? There's the Tekalili weaknesses. Yeah, we, we talked about it a bit already, but it's this uh, constant threat where you have this deck of weaknesses, different effects in the scenario, we'll add them to your deck, and then when you draw them, you take some penalty, and then it gets put back on the bottom of the Tekalili deck. So it helps, it helps ensure that you kind of get a variety of them throughout. There's also some encounter cards that are like, draw a Tekele deck uh, card, uh, resolve it, and then give it to another, <laughs> give it to the investigator <laughs> on the team, uh, right. which is which is always fun. Uh, or resolve them twice, which makes them yeah, really brutal. Resolve them twice. Yeah, there's a lot of variety, I think, in scenario effects that we see that kind of change how you think about them a little bit, or make them like hit, be feel a little bit more nastier than you initially thought. Yeah, yeah, because you can like, for instance, there's a there's a treachery that goes in your threat area that says whenever you draw one, resolve it mm-hmm. twice, right, or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I I think there is a lot of design space here, and I think they explored a lot of it pretty well. It, it's definitely it's an interesting like it's another kind of punishment or challenge that the game mm-hmm. can throw at you, and I, I thought that was cool. It's definitely painful to you know obviously it's not fun to have your deck gummed up with a bunch of weaknesses, so you draw three cards and you get like two weaknesses or something that feels mm-hmm. terrible. But uh, one of the partners, their special ability is that you can exhaust it and spend a secret to draw two cards when I think somebody at your... It's like when somebody at your location draws... Danforth. And, yeah, D- Danforth. The, by, far the, by far the greatest partner. Um, <laughs> when, when somebody at your location draws a Tech Luli weakness, you can exhaust them and spend a secret to make them draw two cards. Yeah. And that kind of compensates for like the velocity you lose by... So what we tended to do in our in our playthrough was to try to whenever you have a choice to like pick somebody to take a weakness, we generally would give it to the same person and that person would have Danforth. Yeah. Um, so I think if you're doing that, that's maybe the least painful way to deal with them. But yeah, I, I mostly like this. I don't think I would enjoy a playthrough of edge of the earth where I ended up with a ton of them in my deck, but as long as there's ways to play around it, um, I think it's pretty cool. Cause you keep them between yeah. scenarios, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you, they don't, but once you draw them, they go away. Yeah. So it's kind of like a it's like a future penalty you can get at some point. And it does counter drawing a little bit. Like it slows you down a little bit. Like drawing is obviously very powerful in this game and I mean most card games. So it is a way to kind of slow that down a little bit. Uh, and maybe if you're like getting low in your deck and stand in a scenario it's like, "Oh, do I really want to draw three cards when I know like half my deck is weaknesses right now?" <laughs> so, you know, it might give you pause there. So, I I thought they were pretty effective as a mechanic. I think they were well balanced in that most of them are like pretty pretty painless most of them are a lot of them are like you take one damage or you take one horror um there are there are worse ones like there's one that's basically like a crypt chill which is pretty bad in a lot of <laughs> for a lot of decks mm. um but yeah for the most part they're, they're kind of just like a little speed bump that like slows your deck down and gives you a little little annoying you know kick kind of yeah i think yeah. they do a really good job at introducing you to this environment because we have to remember that we're, we're kind of in the arctic wilderness and i think that this this set is like kind of the biggest departure from the general Arkham experience because not only in the way that it was released, but also because uh, you're not dealing with regular Arkham things, right? There's no Dark Cold set. You don't encounter rats. Why would those make sense in the freezing wilderness of the Arctic? So they kind of have the Lost Researcher set to do that, to mimic that a little bit. But they did a really good job like with what limited things there are in the Arctic and the Tekili, the Tekalili weaknesses definitely shore that up like shore up that difference because if it were just the encounter cards that were coming at you and not the Tekalili deck I think it might have been a little lacking but they kept it a little bit more like spicy they helped build up the the threat of the area a bit as well too especially early on where you don't really know what's what the actual threat is and you're just trying to piece it together yeah, and it and it and it gives the there's a there's a particular I can't remember exactly how the spoilers thing works, but there's one particular sort of type of enemy that is associated with those weaknesses, uh, and it gives it helps to give that enemy kind of like a mechanical theme because they often have like on encounter or on attack effects that give you like a. a, a it's the most yeah, magic so. enemy that's ever been in the game. They're eidolons. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I mean that's just like a term for like a specific type of. It's like a generic man- magic monster term that people define however sure, they want sure. in whatever yeah, yeah. medium, right? You know, totally. Like, so. totally. 
So one of the Final Fantasy games had Eidolons. I don't remember which one. Oh, it did. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I remember it from like Pathfinder where there was like a class that like summoned a monster and it was called an Eidolon. But, uh, you know, you just kind of make up whatever that you want for that. I think that's basically it for campaign mechanics. We kind of, we talked about kind of the checkpoints already. And like we talked about the interludes a bit. So yeah, those are the major stuff for mechanics. Uh, yeah, I think next time we're going to talk about the remaining scenarios and maybe more a bit a bit more about the story and the themes. Uh, we were trying to keep this one to not spoil the second half. So uh, for Dane and our audience, you know, yeah. But first half of this campaign, real strong. Yeah, we enjoyed it. So everybody, how's your Edge of the Earth campaign going so far? Are you Team Penguin or Team Sled Dog? Walk, walk, walk. <laughs> I think we know what Dan is. Let us know. And if you want to see me try and immediately regret a bag of black licorice on stream, uh, doing my best lost researcher impression, email us at comments at mur.fm. Uh, or just to stay current on what we're doing, follow us on social networks, including Instagram and Twitch, or join our Discord server. Uh, you can find all the links to these two at social.mur.fm. And if you really enjoy what we do and want to get more involved, you can become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash Kentucky University Radio. Or just leave us a nice review on your favorite podcasting source. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Then have you been pronouncing the weaknesses? We said Tekalili, but I think it's Tekelili. I've been saying Tekelele, but that there's a 95% chance it's wrong. <laughs> I think it's Tekelili, but we <laughs> just say Tekelili because it's fun to say. Yeah, I mean, like you're supposed to, you're supposed to say it fast and emphasize the consonants, I think. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just say Tekelili because I use my reading comprehension skills. Uh, you can't trust that when it's an alien uh, thing that we don't understand, Dan. That's a fair point. Yep, yeah, yeah, sounds right. <laughs>